have a question. Do you enjoy the political season? I, I really would like it, you know, it, I'm sure there's a very different view here. So all those who enjoy the political season that's upon us, I, raise your hand. Be brave. Okay. Shane, how do you feel? We don't know. Okay, how many do not like the political season? Okay, that's what I expected. Well, we've just had a little taste of it because of the Wisconsin governor's recall, and we're in the media market for Wisconsin. So we've had a little taste of what is coming for the next, whatever, five or six months. Um, well, one of the perceptions that outsiders have of us as Christians has to do with politics, and that's why I asked that question. Uh, we have spent the last number of weeks looking at this whole concept of the church and Christians behaving in unchristian ways, and based on the perception of outsiders. And it comes from this book that was really a collection of variety of research. Looking at 35-year-olds and younger who are outside the church and how they see us. And unfortunately, in negative ways. We've sort of filled in this graphic and looked at all of these. They see us as judgmental. They see us as hating homosexuals. They see us as, as hypocrites. They see us as sheltered, not living in the real world that they live in. They see us as just interested in numbers and converting people to build our numbers up. And so we've looked at those, and I've done this because even though it's painful, sometimes it's always good to hear what others see. Because sometimes there's truth in that that we need to hear. And I hope this has been a helpful process to make us think about how we're living, not just here on Sunday morning, but during the week, in our neighborhoods, on our ball teams, with our friends, everywhere. Well, the last one that we want to talk about today, the sixth perception they have of us, uh, these are the six top strong ones, is that we're too political. Now, I, I, I want you to stay with me on this one because you could react very quickly and become defensive and write them off and say, well, they just don't want us to speak for Christians and our viewpoint. But it's deeper than that and it's more complicated than that. And it's not that outsiders think we should be silent. It's a, it's a bigger issue than that. And that's what I want us to talk about. In the research asking these outsiders, when they raise this issue of politics and Christians, what they're talking about is they see the church, they see conservative Christians as too focused on a right-wing political agenda. And that that right-wing political agenda receives too much attention in the church. Too much of our energy goes into that political agenda. And that we're not actually helping our country with our agenda. Some of these statistics that they found are, were troubling to me. And I just want to share a few of them to help us sort of get a handle on this and what they're talking about. 62% of outsiders see conservative Christians' political actions as a problem for our country. 
our conservative Christian actions are a problem in our country. 42% of these generation in the church agree. 47%. Let's go not just for young. All adults in America. 21% of all adults in America see conservative Christians' political activities as a major concern. 48% see it as at least a concern. 40, yeah. If you extrapolate that, what that means is this. 110 million American adults are concerned about conservative Christians' political activities. 110 million. Half of born-again Christians have the same concern. I just want to stop there for a second. That says a couple things. And I think we see that if you're in the church much, you experience it. Even in the church, we're not sure what we should do with politics. And I think that uncertainty, I mean, should it have a role? Do we talk about it? How much do we talk about it? The church doesn't have a definite answer on that. And what does that discussion look like? Some of it depends on what tradition you're in. If you're in a Catholic tradition, that political discussion will look one way. If you're in a mainline tradition, um, um, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, that political discussion will look another way. If you're in some conservative churches, it will look one way. If you're in some other conservative churches, there won't be a political discussion. So there really is a spectrum. That's why that bottom statistic is there. The more troubling one for me is the top statistic. That how we are going about our political activity, and this is really targeted towards the conservative churches. They're really not speaking about the Catholic Church or some of those other traditions that are generalized as more liberal. But the conservative Christian tradition, how we are going about that, there's 110 million adults in this country who are saying, I'm worried about this. I'm worried about my country and how this is impacting us. I think that must cause us as Christians to have pause. Because we are called to minister to, to reach this country. And if our political activity is turning them off, then we need to do some soul-searching. And where we're headed, just so you know, and I don't want you to shut down on me, they're not saying we should be quiet. That's the most interesting thing in this research. Their, their goal is not saying just shut up the Christians. I'm sure there's some out there who would have that agenda, but in general, the outsiders aren't saying that. It's how we're going about it. That's different. And that's what we want to look at. Here are some of their concerns. First of all, younger adults have grown up in a very broken, self-centered world. And so they have seen in this world um, people who are all about power, who are all about themselves, who have hidden agendas, 
And so out of that, this younger generation is very skeptical of anybody who's involved in politics just to support themselves. They don't trust people like that. And too often, that's how Christians are coming across. We are only involved in politics for our own agenda. And so that presents an image of very self-centered. And so they mistrust us. In some ways, one of their strongest accusations is when we look at the Christians in the political arena, they're not behaving any different than anybody else in the political arena. They don't mean that we need to be quiet. I already said that. They see us as having one more perspective, which should be at the table. One of the things that we've talked about in previous weeks in younger generations is they understand the world is very diverse, and there's lots of different views, and they would say there may not be one answer. And they actually enjoy seeing all the different options and all the different answers and taking in all this data. That is a positive to them. And so because of that, they very much are welcome to the Christians with their answers being at the table. That's one more option. They want to hear from that option. That's why the research is not saying they want the Christians to shut up. They want us to be involved, what they don't want is when we try and be in control. When we don't come across as respecting the other voices at the table with whom we might disagree. That's when we lose our credibility. They think we expect too much out of politics. I thought that was fascinating. That we think politics is going to be a magic wand and if we can just get enough votes and just do enough in the legislature, we will fix the ills of our society and straighten out our country. And they're very skeptical that that's really going to work. Here's what they expect of us and why they label this as unchristian. They expect we should act like Jesus. I mean, what an assumption. But not just in how we vote. If we are Christians, then we should act like Jesus all the time. In the political discussion, in the posters we hold up, in how we behave in rallies, we should be acting like Jesus in all those times in how we even talk about our elected officials. We should be speaking like Jesus would speak. And they see too much anger, too much emotion, too much hatred, and the outsider says, this doesn't line up with what I know of Jesus. And that's what hurts our credibility. They also see us as too focused on our comfort, our advantage. We want these political things done because it will help us. And what they expect is Jesus was not about himself. Jesus was about helping those who had troubles and struggles and were not being noticed and nobody cared about them. 
And the outsiders have the audacity to think we should use politics the same way. That our political energy shouldn't just be used for our own benefit. But that if we live like Jesus, we should be using our political energy to address the needs they see. Those who don't have a job or have a disease or don't have work or don't have housing or whatever the needs of that group, that country, that society, that city might be, are we using our political energy to speak into those needs like Jesus lived? I found them very challenging in some of the things these non-Christian outsiders were saying. Now, there's several issues we need to talk about today. There's a whole lot more I'd love to talk about, but I was chicken to go there. No. Obviously, there's the question of how we behave in the public sector, how we act when we are out there as Christians involved in the political process, and the other question is should we even be involved in politics? And as I said earlier, that is a very open question that you'll find different Christians with very different views on. The first thing, in going back to that, is I think we all would recognize today that politics has become extremely brutal. It is ugly and getting more ugly. Numerous commentators talk about how polarized the nation has become, and as it has become more polarized, there is more emotion and anger being shot both ways. And I think everyone would say that is happening. The problem is in that kind of emotionally charged atmosphere, the danger is that we get involved in that and we get sucked into that same kind of behavior. So we start as Christians lobbying our charges and our emotionally laden and our distortions and whatever else because that's what's going on. And we all know as humans how easy it is to get sucked into an environment and pretty soon you start being part of the environment. And that's one of the dangers I think we have to face as Christians. Can I be involved in this environment but in a way that it will not draw me into behaving in a way that is not like Jesus? And I think we would all say that's the line in the sand. It's not okay to behave in ways that's not like Jesus. And so we have to look at ourselves and the environment and say, how much am I influenced? To stand and be sources of truth and love, to stand with courage like Jesus did, of course that's a good thing. But we have to be honest about the pull of the negative environment, and are we allowing that to affect us? That's one of our challenges. Jesus acted with kindness, with respect, with truthfulness, open and upfront, forgiving, serving, and helping. I don't think any of us would use any of those adjectives to describe the current political environment. And so if we're going to be involved in that, how do we maintain those adjectives for us and our behaviors? 
that's one of the things we have to wrestle with. Because when we lose those behaviors, the outsiders notice. And they say, that's not right. That's not adding up. I'm seeing hatred. I'm seeing distortions. I'm seeing all kinds of negative things. In some ways, that was the easier question. The harder question is, is politics for us? Should we be involved? How much should we be involved? Should we vote? Should we run for office? How much should we be involved? I'm not going to try and give each of us an answer for that. I think we have to each answer it ourselves. But I do want to give us some things to think about. And here's where I have some scriptures for us to look at. The first one may surprise you, but it's from Ecclesiastes 8.2. And it says, Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Now, I put that up there for one interesting reason. Way back in Ecclesiastes, Solomon starts to draw a relationship between the government and how I treat the government and the fact that I'm a believer, that I took an oath for God. And that that, that faith, if I can summarize it that way, that faith has consequences in how I relate to the king, the government. And I found that a fascinating concept. And I think one that, it, that should be true. If I am a believer, if I have faith, it should have consequences. It should be played out not just on Sunday morning in church. That faith should have consequences in how I exist in a political world. And how I, how I treat, react with the government. There is an interplay there, and that's the reason I put that up there. Romans 13 is probably the largest passage in the New Testament. It's not probably, it is. The largest passage in the New Testament that deals with Christians and government. We won't read the whole chapter. I want to read two sections from it. Where Paul talks at length about, okay, you're a Christian now, but you're living in these countries with governments, how do you treat the government? I want to read two, the, first, the first two verses, and then verses 6 and 7. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently... Whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. That is all, now 6 and 7. That is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servant. Who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. We should have looked at this on April 15th. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you owe revenue, then pay your revenue. If you owe respect, then give respect. If you owe honor, then give honor. There's a concept that Paul 
clearly teaches. And that is that government is part of God's design in society. And that we as Christians are to be cooperative with that concept of government. We are being, to be supportive of it. Now, I can't avoid... This gets real complicated, and that's why this is not an easy subject to look at briefly on one Sunday morning. Paul is talking about a concept here, and Paul was writing this when there were Roman emperors who said, I am God. He was not serving under a Christian government way far off compared to anything we've ever experienced. Pagan, capital P. He still wrote this. So we can't escape this passage by just saying, well, the president or the government currently isn't a Christian or whatever, therefore. Because it wasn't a Christian emperor when Paul wrote this. There is a challenge that he says, and it's consistent with the other passages in the New Testament, that we need government, that in general, government is good. Designed by God to bring order to society, to protect the weak, to give us laws and boundaries. And we as Christians need to be seen as cooperative with that institution which God has put in place. Now, it gets much more complicated, and I understand that having worked behind the Iron Curtain under communism. What do you do when that government says you can't go to church, you can't believe? So there's all kinds of details when this plays out. And the Christians there, and it's interesting to have gotten to know the Christians under communism, they were still cooperative citizens. There were no Christian groups I was ever aware of under communism that were working for the political overthrow of the communist system. They were obeying Romans 13. Now, where they drew the line was, that government I will support in the sense of being a cooperative citizen with until that government gives me a direct edict that disagrees with what God said. And then, like Peter says in Acts, when his government said, you don't preach Jesus anymore, in the book of Acts, Peter says, well, if I have to choose between listening to you and listening to God, I'm going to go with God. And we're going to keep preaching. That was basically how the Christians under communism handled it. We will be cooperative citizens until the government says, you have to do this. You can't go to church. You can't worship. You can't have a Bible. And then they said, Sorry, we're going to go with God. But that did not give them permission to become rebellious citizens. That's how they played that out. And it was fascinating to come in as an outsider and watch that. But they never saw that as violating or, or throwing out the concept that Paul lays out here in Romans 13. That as Christians, we should be known in general as cooperative citizens. As long as it doesn't force us to disobey God. There's one other passage, and that's from 1 Peter. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And I want you to remember what I said earlier. Peter wrote this 
when honoring the emperor, the emperor was somebody who believed he is God and wanted all the masses to worship him. Emperor worship had already started. And yet Peter says, because he is an authority over us, pagan or not, as good Christian citizens, we want to show proper respect because he is the government over us. Those are challenging examples that challenge us in how we view government, how we participate in it. But I also wanted to mention some other examples, not scriptures, but people you're familiar with. Four guys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were Jewish. They were part of Israel when it was taken off into captivity. They were selected by the Babylonian king to be trained so that they became government leaders. And what did they do? They studied hard and they worked very well to help the government and were promoted greatly. And it's a, a fascinating concept to think through. It was a pagan government that worshipped other gods, but that's where they were due to captivity. It wasn't they had a choice. But once they were there, they did not become conscientious objectors. And I don't say that flippantly, but they were put in a place and they tried to be effective and be people who were respected and revered. And they were, even though it was a pagan setting. You can add to that list Nehemiah, who is in the same, just the next nation that came through, the Persians. He too was Jewish, but became cupbearer to the king, which is way beyond Butler. He was a very important official for a pagan emperor and worked very hard to do a good job for that pagan emperor. Now, God used him to help rebuild Jerusalem and all that, but what does Nehemiah do as soon as he's done with his work in Jerusalem? He goes back to help the king to serve some more. And the last one I wanted to add to that list is Esther. Through God's working, she becomes the queen of a pagan nation and uses that position of influence with the king, of course, to save her people. But she was a part of that pagan system. I just bring all these people out for us to think about in where do we fit into all of this? And it's not this picture that maybe is so simple. It's a little more complicated. And I know of some phenomenal Christian folks who've gotten involved in government and state legislatures. Uh, I think the speaker at the state convention, his wife, is running for office in Iowa. Um, who try to be active Christians in that mix of government, and not everyone is a believer, but they're in the midst of sifting that all out. It seems to me, if I understand these scriptures, it's fascinating to play out, because in the New Testament, everything is obey the emperor. But we're in a democracy. We are the government. And it's out of that, if we are to respect that government and to give to the government what is due, 
my first conclusion that I would propose to you is that we need to participate in government. By that I mean we need to vote. We need to educate ourselves and we need to vote as we think Jesus would vote. Because we are to respect the government. We are to honor the emperor. Well, we are the government. We need to be participating in that process. Outsiders are right. We need to bring to the table that voice for a different perspective, a different worldview, Christ's worldview. And we need to bring that voice to the table, or how will it be heard? That doesn't mean we can take control. That doesn't mean we should be disrespectful of others. I think one of the other conclusions is that we do need to use whatever political power we have for good, not just for ourselves, to reflect Jesus' agenda. How can we use this political power to help those in need, to address ills where people are suffering, treating others with grace, that kind of Christ-like behavior is a challenge for us. And we need to be willing to be that way. It's a challenging issue. And I know within this congregation, small as it is, there's all kinds of views here. But we are called to be a part of this world, and we are left to sort of figure that out. What does that look like? What does God need me to do? How do I play that all out? And we won't all answer it the same way. That's part of a church family. And learning from each other and wrestling with each other and listening to each other, even when we don't agree, just as we do need to do that out in secular government. The conclusion I would like to make is outsiders can like us. And this is really a conclusion to the whole sermon series. There is nothing inherent about our faith that makes people not want to like us. And the reason I say that is because as Jesus lived it and loved others, they liked him. I said this last week. The number one criticism of Jesus is that he was a friend of sinners. They loved him. They thronged to hear him. They were sinners, and they still loved him. That's our challenge. It is not to cease being Jesus. It is to be Jesus as he was in ways where he stood for the truth, God's truth. But he also treated people with love and compassion and cared for them and tried to help others and make a difference in a positive way. And that's what he calls us to do. And it's not about power. Not for Jesus. It's about serving and helping. And that's perhaps his greatest 
challenge to us. Whatever setting we're in, whether that's in our homes, at work, in the political arena, are we there to serve and to love and to give a cup of cold water as Jesus did? And in the process, be able to introduce them to our Heavenly Father who loves them like we are showing them love by our actions. And that's why thousands throng to hear Jesus every time he taught. Let's pray. Father, um, this is a tough issue. Both the political issue and what do we do and There's so many different strong opinions. And even the bigger issue of just how do we behave in the world so that people are drawn to us and to you and not turned away. I am so thankful that you came to earth in human form and gave us Jesus. Not just to die on a cross, but to live a life well lived and to give us a model of how to behave, how to treat others, how to talk, what's important. Father, may we take that challenge to be like Jesus seriously in all the areas of our lives so that we don't live in unchristian ways. I ask this in his name. Amen.